In Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 15 today, what we actually see is we actually see the inception of Christian culture, the very beginning of it. And I think Mark tells us three things about Christian culture. He tells us uh, about how Jesus inaugurated a subversive counterculture. He tells us that cultural identity is not performance-based in this culture. And the third thing I think he tells us is that Jesus's culture that he starts is actually attractive. Let's start with the first one. Jesus inaugurated a, a subversive counterculture. Check out what is written in verse 16 and 17 here. And the scribes of the Pharisees, the, the church guys, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. You know, one thing that you've actually got going on here is you've got a clash between someone with a subculture mindset, mindset and someone with a countercultural mindset. If you look at the uh, definitions of the, uh, the terms that I'm using here in, in comparison is that the difference between a subversive counterculture and a subculture. Subversion is to basically be an undercurrent that seeks to take over or work against the, uh, the status quo. Um, and a counterculture in general, uh, they're not, not always subversive. A counterculture is one that actually is very, is a culture that's different from the, the, uh, the mainstream one, but actually seeks to change the mainstream one. Subcultures, on the other hand, are a little bit different to that. People can be in subcultures, and they, they're not necessarily, subcultures by definition don't tend to be subversive. They tend to be happy just to be their own little thing. They've got their own identity, their own set of kind of behaviours, the things that they do. And they're not really looking to change the world or persuade everyone else that they've got to come and join their club. They're just happy inside their particular club. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? So what you've got is, uh, let me give you a couple of examples of subcultures. Um, one subculture I find particularly interesting is uh, the racing, the horse racing subculture. I mean, you drive past Clifford Park um, Raceway. It's not, what is it? Race course. I almost call it a raceway. It's not that kind of raceway. You drive past uh, Clifford Park Race Course, and, I mean, there's lots of short guys, and there's people walking horses around, and the whole... Maybe they've got high voices. I don't know. But there's, there's a whole bunch of people, and they're just living a completely different way to me, and they're not knocking on my window trying to spread the gospel of uh, horse racing. All right, they're just really happy in that. And I, I look at them and I go, I just, I mean, I'm tall and I've probably got a deeper voice and I don't sit on horses, all right? So I don't understand the, that kind of sub, subculture. I mean, there's subcultures all over the place. Yeah, I mean, people talk about the footballing subculture. They talk about, uh, some people talk about the emo subculture, the death metal subculture. There's subcultures all over the place. And I'm not saying that any of that is bad and I'm not saying anything to do with the race the horse racing subculture is bad. It's just different. It's these little pockets of cultures around the place. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Christianity is a subculture? Or should I, maybe I'll be more specific, do you think Christianity should be a subculture? Well, that may be a good answer. But the evidence appears to be otherwise a lot of the time. Let me give you some examples. The first one's this. Uh, you can actually buy gospel golf balls. They've actually got John 3.16 printed on them. And the idea is, if you're a really bad Christian golfer, the ball gets lost in the rough, and some person who's 
doesn't have enough money or doesn't want to spend the money buying golf balls, comes and finds it, they read John 3.16 they get saved. <laughs> then you've got witness wear. That shirt is meant to mean I must ask you about God. You get it? This is actually a company, right? And I'm not saying, is it, am I saying it's a bad company? No, I'm not saying it's a bad company. But you can buy Christian T-shirts. You see the Starbucks one, they're sacrificed for me. I saw another image when I was looking around and I just thought that's pretty typical too. Is I saw one with a, uh, a Starbucks logo and instead of saying sacrifice for me, it said liquid Jesus. <laughs> it wasn't by witness wear, by the way. Um, really interesting. So you got that. This, this is... This is pretty gold. Testaments. This is true. So every individually wrapped packet has a scripture on it. So you can just, you know, you're at work and you can just hand someone a mint. It's got a cross in it. It's got a scripture. You can, you can eat a Christian mint. And this is probably my favorite. And I'm going to show you a little bit of this. Bible man. Bible man, you may not know this, but Bible man's a superhero. And I'm going to show you a clip from Bible man. Miles Peterson, a man who had it all. Wealth, status, success. Still, something was lacking. Miserable, alone, his spirit beaten, Miles Peterson gave up. Then, in his darkest hour, the words of a single book began to change his life. And at last, Miles Peterson felt the burning desire to know God. Inspired by the Word of God and equipped with unyielding faith, Miles pledged to fight evil in the name of God. As That's, that's called mercy. That's Bible man. Does, does Christianity need a superhero? Like Bible man. So let me ask you again, do you actually think, on the surface of it, do you think, how much has Christianity in Australia actually become a subculture? That's a good question. You see, I think Christians tend to sit somewhere on the continuum from Siege mentality, we've got to stay away from all the bad people right through to being hanging out with the bad people and being so much like the bad people in a sense. I'm saying bad people in inverted commas that you can't tell any difference between them. You see, there is a really strong sense and I understand there's probably some people who aren't Christians who don't follow Jesus here today and hopefully you enjoy my little critique of, uh, of Christianity because I don't think we get it particularly, uh, we don't nail it particularly well. Uh, we tend, we're probably pretty known for being people who separate from culture and just kind of go, we've got to stay away from the bad people and we've got to kind of try and be pure. We can get a bit of a siege mentality. But then there's other people um, who, in the Christian uh, realm, in the church, who are so much reaching other people, they're so concerned about other people, um, they're so embedded in the culture that they're not any different and they're not actually transformative. And what we've actually got here in Mark chapter 2 is you've got Jesus being accused of not being distinct from the bad people in, in the sense that he's picked up their reputation from them. 
You see, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the leper that Jesus touched. And the fear was that Jesus was going to get the uncleanness from the leper, but it actually worked in reverse. But you can see here what the Pharisees, the church guys are doing at this point in time is they're saying, listen, you're hanging out with these bad, bad people. You must have become bad. But you know what? That's what Jesus does. Because the best place for a saviour to be is with the people who need saving. Amen? He gets out amongst them. Now, I'm going to keep ducking in and out in terms of your own personal application. If the Bible's right and the Bible's true, and Jesus is going to come back one day, what will your witnessing or your testimony to Jesus with people who don't know him, what will that look like on the day that Jesus comes back? I mean, I'm absolutely persuaded that there's going to be a lot of people who aren't following Jesus, who won't be following Jesus, who will have a legitimate complaint against Christians. Because there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, you can know someone who's not a Christian for sometimes years, and they won't even know that you are a Christian and that you follow Jesus. And I would ask you this question, how long, now there's not a specific time, but how long is too long? to know someone before they at least should know what you think about something at least they should know that you know Jesus I mean it probably doesn't seem quite right I mean imagine if you knew someone for five years and they never ever knew that you're a Christian and then Jesus comes back and they're just going what the heck were you doing what did you not tell me and there would be a genuine realistic fair point <laughs> that you should have told them you see, and I think what happens is that we, if we get into a subculture mindset about Christianity, that's kind of what happens. And I want to ask you a few more questions. Do you think it's okay to have a Christian school? And let me add to that, is it okay to homeschool your kids? Now, straight up off the bat, some of you are going, well, you've got to look after your kids. And I'd say, yes, you do need to look after your kids. But if you actually look at, and my four children go to a Christian school. Now, I've thought for quite some time that Christian schools have an incredibly large amount of pressure and expectation upon them. I think they've got a higher expectation upon them than what they think. And you know why? Because Christian schools have sucked a lot of Christian teachers out of schools where there's lots of people who don't follow Jesus and they've also sucked a lot of kids from Christian families out of the system where all the people are who don't know Jesus yeah yeah they're good and they they can help educate kids and introduce kids to Jesus who uh, come from homes where kids don't learn about Jesus but do you get my point it's got, at some point it gets uncomfortable When do we stop pulling people out of where there's sinners who need a saviour? Where there's needy people who need a saviour? And I think it's an awkward one. I remember talking to some students in Year 12 here a number of years ago and I was working at the school here and they, they said, we're going to go to Christian Heritage College. And I've just gone for teacher education, for a Bachelor of Education. And you know what? I said, well, what do you want to do that for? Like, there's a university in Toowoomba here, and they've gone through Christian high school, the whole of Christian high school, and I just go, 
well, what do you want to do that for? Do you want to just go down there because it's, you know, I mean, it's one thing if you sense that God's calling you down there. It's a whole other thing if you're just going, that would be really nice. I can be there. I'm not really going to be threatened. It's going to be comfortable and it's going to be a nice place to go. And I challenged him. I said, maybe you should go to USQ. You know, because part of it, part of being in a subculture is that you don't have to think that much, do you? Is that true? If you don't, if, if, you're, a, if you're countercultural and you're subversive, you're going to have to do a lot of thinking and you're probably going to have to do a lot of reading. Because you can't just buy everything that gets delivered to you. What about this? Would it be right for the project to start some kind of soup kitchen? Um, you're all, at this point in time, you're all going, okay, that's it. there's going to be a trick in every one of these questions, right? But you know the answer is yes and no, isn't it? Like, why wouldn't we? Why would we start our own thing by default all the time? Why wouldn't we actually just send a whole bunch of people who have a heart for that and a bunch of money to be part of a soup kitchen that's already running? You get my point? And this, is, this tends to be the case with Christianity, is what we actually do is we get a subcultural kind of mindset and we just start gathering things we want to make our little pocket our little zone christian we want to have christian shops christian dry cleaners christian everything go to the christians we have a christian directory into one with a scripture union a scripture union actually i don't think it was scripture union another ministry in town put out a christian directory right and it's it's just uncomfortable yeah, am I saying that you shouldn't get a Christian to work on your stuff in your house to fix the plumbing in your house? No, I'm not saying that. But it becomes really awkward when you think that's the right thing to do is to get a Christian to work on the plumbing in your house. Some Christians are terrible plumbers. <laughs> True? And you'd be better off getting one that knows how to do plumbing rather than one that loves Jesus who can't do it. True? So do we need Christian neurosurgeons? No, I just want a neurosurgeon that can look after my head. You get my point? And it may actually be that in the interactions that you have with people, that Jesus, the saviour who loves to be with people who need saving, actually intersects with them. But what tends to happen, and this is a particularly strong danger for me, what tends to happen is we become a Christian, and the longer we're a Christian, the less people we know who aren't Christian. We get Christian friends, we go to a Christian church, we send our kids to a Christian school, they go to a Christian youth group. And in Brisbane, I was in a Christian soccer team. And everything's Christian. And I don't know how Jesus is meant to get out to all the people that need saving when he's stuck with all the Christians all the time. Now, some of you you might think that's a bit harsh, but do you get my point? You see, what Jesus actually needs is he needs a church that incarnates him in their current culture. And you are uniquely placed with the people around you to be an incarnational Christian. Jesus in chili con carne is chili in meat. Incarnation is God in meat. All right? And that's what he was originally in Jesus. But when you live your life with people that don't follow Jesus, you know what you get to be? You get to be Jesus in the meat to them and you are uniquely placed to reach those people so long as you don't get a subculture mindset 
the scribes and the Pharisees got a subculture mindset. Read this from uh, D. English, a uh, theologian. It is natural, therefore, that the church defends standards and the members embody them in their lifestyle. This sets clear boundaries to the extent to which we can mix easily with those whose lifestyles are very different from ours. We quickly feel not only uneasy, but actually compromised. What is more, we sense that the atmosphere in such settings may be inimical to our spiritual growth, harmful. This is, note this, listen to this. Yet if that becomes our dominant attitude, when we find ourselves increasingly cut off, especially in social rather than work context from those who are different from us in not believing the church develops an entire subculture of its own and is increasingly insulated from the world to that extent its witness and missionary effectiveness are diminished is he right you see we need to live in the tension between recklessly risking and securing our life you see we need to be with people who need to be saved by Jesus and to be changed by Jesus. But we don't do that in an isolation, isolationist, with an isolationist approach, sorry, I should say. We do that in relationship with other Christians. We make sure we're connected to God. We, we get into prayer and we get into the scriptures to make sure that we don't actually take on um, some of the qualities of the people that, that we mix with. And we also realise that we have the same issues of all the people that we mix with. Behaviour, I, I think what tends to happen in the Christian community quite a bit is we kind of go skeet shooting. You know, skeet shooting is where they sling out a clay. What's it called? It's skeet. There you go. What's it called? A pigeon. There you go. Thank you. Fling out a clay pigeon and you shoot it. And I think the church has become super, super good at just picking off behaviours. It's like we look at someone, we look at their behaviour and you pick it off and you just go, look at that you evil person when the reality is i think that most of us have got almost identical mechanisms going on in our heart we've just learned to be more disciplined on the surface and not let that stuff come out in particular behaviors now if jesus is right and that the big issue is your heart and not your behavior and that the heart drives the behavior we're in just as much trouble and in just as much need as the people that we criticize and that we're judgmental about you know, Jesus gained a reputation as a greedy, hard-drinking friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do people say that about you? Do you have that reputation? And the reason why I'm asking is because if you want to be like Jesus at some level, that's going to be one of the areas you're going to be like Jesus. you know what was interesting about Jesus and what was amazing about Jesus and what we need to learn from Jesus is how do you be with people who are very caustically in the other direction and rather than you being transformed by them you actually bring transformation to them because Jesus was able to do that you see in Mark 2 16 to 17 you know what the scribes and the Pharisees you know what their major issue was with Jesus is that he was a doctor but he shouldn't be with sick people. Do you see that? And that's what Jesus says to them. You see, Jesus can't do his saving work unless he's with people who need to be saved. But you know what? If your Christianity, if my Christianity becomes a subculture to us, 
if it just becomes nice, if going to church becomes nice and it becomes comfortable and it doesn't and it ceases to become about other people, it ceases to be subversive, it ceases to be countercultural, then Jesus won't get to the sick people. So I'm going to give you a few criteria to judge whether your Christianity has become a subculture. And we're going to all put our hands up. No, we're not. Point one, you stay away from people who don't go to church because you're concerned about their effect on you. Now, it is a very destructive thing to be around people who love things that actually tear them apart. And it's, 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 you can be really affected by that sort of stuff. So I'm not... Some of you go, yeah, it's really dangerous. Well, it can be really dangerous because we have the same heart as people who aren't following Jesus or we have a similar heart to the people who aren't following Jesus, albeit our heart's been renewed by Christ, but we've still got similar kind of temptations. In spite of the fact our heart is new, we have similar temptations to them. So we need to be careful, but does that mean we completely stay away? I don't think so. What about this one? You don't know many people who aren't Christians. How many people do you know who aren't Christians? How many people do you talk to that aren't Christians? How many people do you know that aren't Christians that aren't at your work? Delete work. Because you remember that quote that I just read out from the theologian said, take work away. How many friends do you actually have that don't follow Jesus? Now, personally... And I don't mean this, uh, this is obviously no direct reference to people present. But personally, I find people who don't follow Jesus sometimes way easier to be around than people who do. And I'll speak to this a little bit more later on. But Christians can be really hard work sometimes. There's a few people nodding. It's pretty refreshing for me. And this was a huge issue for me. I would have failed these first two. I would have been out. I'd go, yeah, I'm a subcultural Christian. That's what I am. A few years ago. Here's another way you might be able to tell whether your Christianity has become a subculture. People who aren't Christians don't like to hang out with you. Like, are you actually good to hang out with? Like, fun? Like, would they want to? Like, would they want to go camping with you? Would they want to have a coffee with you? You rarely, if ever, talk about Jesus with unchurched people. And my, my apologies, if you're someone who doesn't regularly go to church today, please, I'm on your team today, all right? I'm on your team today. Please just be patient with us as we go through this. Seriously, if you're not having conversations with people about Jesus at some point in time with people who don't know anything about Jesus and that rarely ever happens, like if, 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 you, can, if you once every six months have a prayer point saying, can someone pray for me because I might be having a conversation with someone tomorrow about Jesus, you've got a major problem. Because you just, and it's not like I'm saying go out and make, turn people into a target. I'm not saying that. Like, just be honest. I mean, my mates at uni would come in on Monday morning and just talk about everything they did on the weekend and they just did pub crawls all weekend. 
why can't you just be honest? You did something on the weekend, so you just talk about it. So this, I went to church. It was good. Oh, you go to church, do you? So there's your door. It's right. It's just open a little bit. Kick it open. All right? If they want to talk about it, they can talk about it. You can talk about it with them. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to go further. Here's the next one. You are judgmental about the behaviour of people who aren't Christians. When I was a young, younger guy, see, I almost said when I was a young guy. When I was a younger guy, I remember pulling up at, uh, in front of this shop and uh, it was open on Sundays and that was a, that was a, that was a big deal. And I, I remember thinking that, that is a bad shop. <laughs> Because they open on Sundays, it's like I wouldn't go to that shop because they open on. Now, do you get that? Like that's kind of getting a subculture kind of mindset. You got you got you got to play the rules. You got to play it by my way. You got to play by my rules. You aren't comfortable about talking to people about Jesus unless you have the home ground advantage. I reckon we're terrible at this, eh? Generally, maybe you're really good. I'm not saying everyone's terrible, but as a general rule, Christians like it when people who aren't Christians come to church, right? And all of a sudden we go from being the minority in culture to being the majority in church, and it, we've got them on our home ground. And it's kind of like, well, I'm just doing everything I can to get them on my home ground. You know what's interesting about Jesus is he's not doing that. He's on everyone else's home turf. So if you're not comfortable about talking about Jesus unless people are on your home ground and you've got the home ground advantage... You may have a subculture mindset. Now, some of you might be thinking at this point in time, yeah, but how do you deal with the real issues? How do you deal with the, the struggles, the troubles? Are you saying, Peter, that we just overlook all the stuff that people do that's harmful? No, I'm not saying that. But I do think that you're going to do it differently. Now, the first thing is this. I don't think Jesus is sitting down with the people who are really struggling and the tax collectors and sinners, he's not talking about the five points of Calvinism, all right? He's not talking about some kind of, you know, he's not, he's, I, I bet you he's not talking about baptism and whether it should be full immersion or sprinkled, okay? He's not talking about all this crazy stuff that we talk about. I'll tell you what else I reckon he's not talking about, is he's not sitting down with them and he's not saying, here's what we've got to do. Before we can have dinner together, you've got to get these first five things squared away and sort out your behaviour and you need to repent. Now, does Jesus want to bring about change to these people? Yes, he does. But is change a precursor to his engagement and his relationship with them? No, it's not. It never is. In fact, if you're a Christian here today, your engagement with God, your relationship with God, it it never starts because you got things cleaned up first. Never. It always starts because he engages with you relationally before you get anything cleaned up. Do you get that? So Christianity is positional before it is behavioural, not behavioural before it's positional. Does that make sense? You have to be positional first. Now, I want to read you a story. This is a story I read this week in an interview with uh, Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson translated the message. And uh, he's a pastor in in America. He's uh, a pastor in a Presbyterian church in America, or he was. And he, uh, he writes about, the interviewer asked him about um, something to do with uh, how you handle uh, situations in the church. And he answered by giving this illustration. 
The text is very small, but I'm just going to read it. You can follow it along with me or not. One woman had just become a Christian and joined the congregation. She was around 40 years old and divorced. She didn't know much about the faith. She was always living with somebody or other. This was just the way she lived. She came to me for a year or so because she was trying to get her life in order. And I was teaching her how to pray. Do you notice that? He's not actually, it's like, I was teaching her to get the heck out of that de facto relationship. Do you see that? His job was to teach her to pray. Peterson says this, Sometimes I'd listen to her and think, should I say something about her sexual lifestyle? She's in church every Sunday. She knows what I believe. She's got to know something about the Ten Commandments. But somehow, I never felt I should say anything. After about a year... A year. He's teaching her to pray for a year and she's in de facto relationships for a year. I said to her, would you do something for me? She said, sure. What do you want me to do? He said, would you live celibate for six months? Why would I do that? She asked. Now, a lot of us, and maybe there's a time where it would be right to do this. A lot of us would go, right, well, can you just open your Bibles for me now? to Exodus chapter 20 and we're going to read the Ten Commandments you know and follow along with me in the scriptures and then I'll expound the word to you you know and we kind of start preaching at people what does Peterson do and I'm not saying you have to do it the way Peterson does it but just note the difference I said I'm not going to give you any reasons I just think I know you pretty well and we're trying to figure out how to live this Christian life just do it do it for me she said Well, I don't see the point of it, but yeah. She started to live celibate. After two or three months, she said to me, thank you for that, I've never felt so free. I didn't know you could live this way. I know the Bible says something about it, but I thought times had changed so much that you couldn't do this. I don't know anybody who lives this way. Thank you, this is wonderful. Things are coming together for me. She thought she was coming to me to bless her her in her life the way she was. At some point, it seemed right to interfere with that. Thankfully, I waited long enough, so the seventh commandment became a word of freedom to her rather than some kind of oppression. That's very insightful. And isn't that true how often we can be tempted to deliver God's word in a way to people that brings about oppression for them rather than freedom? It's like you have to do this. It can have that flavor about it, which is you need to get yourself in the right behaviors before you'll be in the right position. You see, we need to get and we need to have a good sense of process for people, the way the process that God takes people through to change them. Because you know what would happen to you if God, you know, you became a Christian and God said, right, you need to get the next 150 things sorted out in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> How would that go? Oh, terrible, all right? You'd all be lining up for pastoral care from me, all right? <laughs> or from someone, because you just go, I can't do it. I just can't do it. So what does God do? Because you, you might look at Eugene Peterson and you go, well, maybe you should have pointed that out earlier. And I'm just going, well, what do you reckon God could point out in you right now? What do you reckon he could point out in you over the last 10 years that you've been a Christian? Well, he could have pointed out a whole bunch of stuff. And I'll tell you something, I'll let you in on a secret. There's a whole bunch of stuff in you that's all messed up that you haven't even found out about yet. And it's the same for me. And he could actually come in today and he could say, here's the deal. I'm just going to lay it all out for you. Unless you get that sorted by the end of next week, I don't want to have anything to do with you. True? But that's not how he does it. So when you look at Jesus and the tax collectors and sinners, you know what you should be saying? 
Hallelujah. He doesn't do that to them and he's not going to do it to me. You see, the fact that Jesus is subversely, subversively countercultural, it's good news for you. Second thing. What we learn from Mark 2, 13 to 17, the second thing is that cultural identity is not performance-based. I'm just going to read through it again. See if you can identify this as we go through. Jesus went out again besides the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. He passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard of it, he said, run, run, run. Kind of. Do you know what the big problem was with the scribes and the Pharisees? They qualified because of their behaviour. And the tax collectors and sinners didn't. Let me tell you some things about tax collectors. What you had in Roman times there was you had two different levels of tax. One of them was income tax, the other one was poll tax. Sorry, income and poll tax and customs officers tax. Sorry, there's those two different categories. So what you've actually got is you've got, uh, it's kind of like going to the airport and it costs you $35 in tolls, okay? You could walk around places in... Um, in, in uh, the Middle East at that point in time, and there would be tax collectors sitting at booths and they'd tax you, all right? Now, these tax collectors were quite um, vexatious in the, in the amount of money that they'd get out of you. So you'd show up and they'd tax you based on whatever stuff you had on you at that point in time. So they would value what you had and then they'd tax you a proportion of that value. It was a very known, well-known way to get rich quick. The interesting thing about Levi is uh, it was quite a sought-after job in a sense because you could get a lot of money over a short period of time. And when Jesus calls Levi to follow him, the chances of Levi being able to do what the uh, other disciples did, where they, um, they were able to go back to fishing if they wanted to, there's a good chance he would never have been able to do that. Tax collector, if you were called a tax collector, um, that was a really big insult. Um, tax collectors in the day were on the same level as mur murderers and robbers. And some Roman writers have actually even grouped them with um, people who keep brothels, so pimps. So if you got called a tax collector, it was a bad, bad thing. In fact, rabbis back then regarded as unclean any house that had been entered by a tax collector. So you can imagine the kind of people that get drawn to this profession, uh, a profession that relies on suspicion, intrusion, harassment and force will attract some really interesting people. Now, the interesting, uh, another additional thing is most of the time these tax collectors are actually Jews working for the Romans. So on top of that is the fact that they're a trader. And so what you've got is you've got Jesus hanging out with these lowlifes who are actually traders. So you can see how the scribes would be going, well, if you're hanging out with them, you're a trader like they are. You're an outcast 
like they are. You see, a normal tax collector couldn't be a judge or a witness in a court of law. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. The disgrace extended to their whole family. And Jesus is hanging out with these outcasts, these collaborators, these enemies of the Jews, these enemies of God. God is sitting down and eating with his enemies. But Jesus calls them to himself. And it's not just the tax collectors, but you've got the sinners in there as well. Now, you might just think, well, that's just a general term. Well, you know, in the day, back in the day, you know what a sinner was? A sinner was someone, according to the scribes and the Pharisees, that didn't have any consideration and paid no attention to the Levitical law. So it's like you've got all these bad guys and you've got a bunch of people who don't care about the law. And see, you've got to get this because the Pharisees are there and they're going, this is how you get value. This is how you get connected with God. This is how you get grace and this is how you become important. You follow the law. And Jesus is hanging out with people who have no concern for the law at all. You see, the scribes said this. The scribes said, you're somebody because of what you do. So what's Jesus doing calling all these people that are nobodies who don't get it right? And see, this is a great hope for you. If you don't follow Jesus today, this is a great hope for you because the people that God calls are not the people who are neat and tidy. God calls the messy people. And more than just calling the messy people, you've got to get a sense here, he's actually hanging out with the messy people. And one of the big ironies in this passage, when you look at it, well, let me ask you, who do you think was the most messy in terms of the groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners or the Pharisees and the scribes? The Pharisees and the scribes were the most messy. But they didn't see that. They didn't get that. Let me give you a few ways that you might be able to identify that you act a little bit like a Pharisee or a scribe. I'm helping you out today, really. That's what it is. What about this one? By saying that this message would be really good for someone I know. <laughs> Can you give me the link? Because they really need to listen to this. And God, Jesus would be saying, oh, well, I, I really think you need to listen to it. Well, I have this squared away, but they really need to hear it. Here's another way you can uh, think like the scribes, by reading through the Bible with theological grids so that it says what we want it to say rather than what it actually says. Man, I mean, we're in strife on that one, probably. I mean, I used to highlight passages in my Bible. Now, there's nothing wrong with highlighting things if you're a highlighter. But why don't you highlight verses? That would be a good question to ask. There might be a good reason. I mean, you, you know, the family tree from Adam to whatever in the first nine chapters of Chronicles might be a bit tedious for you. It's probably not going to make the highlight real, but what about the other ones? Well, I mean, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. It's like, uh, unless you hate your own life for my sake, you'll lose it. You know, I mean, maybe you got that one highlighted. But I, I just encourage you, be careful what you highlight. Be careful what you say when you talk about your favourite verses. 
Why, why are they your favourite verses? There's no problems with having favourite verses. I'm not saying that. But there is a problem if the favourite verses are the only things that you kind of get drawn to and you read. You can act like the scribes by emphasising knowledge rather than obedience and love. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of uh, the most quoted or read scriptures at weddings. Do you know why 1 Corinthians 13 even came about? Because there are a whole bunch of people in the early church running around doing all these tricky spiritual things with the gifts that God's given them, and they weren't loving anyone. And Paul kind of goes, listen, I don't care what you can do. If you don't love people, it's useless. Tim Chester says this, he says, The teachers of the law created a system that allowed them to feel superior and then lifted not one finger to help others. Think how this might play out today. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their dysfunctional families but lift not one finger to help. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their excessive drinking but lift not one finger to ease their pain. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their laziness but lift not one finger to provide employment. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their abortions, but lift not one finger to adopt unwanted children. I'm not defending dysfunctional families, drunkenness and so on, but we can't condemn these things at a distance. That's legalism. We must come alongside proclaiming and demonstrating the transforming grace of God. So let me ask this. Are you good enough to go to church? Chester goes on to say this, he says, Jesus is handing out God's party invitations. They read, you're invited to my party in the new creation. Come as you are. The religious leaders agreed there was a party and an invitation and even that it was possible to attend. When the religious leaders passed out the invitation, they didn't say, come as you are. They said, you've got to get changed. You've got to get cleaned up. As a result, people didn't come because they didn't think they were good enough. And folks, we haven't reached the end of people who think they're not good enough to be a Christian, to come to church. I mean, we all look pretty nice in spite of the fact that you're all glowing from the heat. Like, would it really be okay? I mean, we're all messed up and we're just pretending if we, if we think we're not. But would it really be okay if some really obviously messed up people came to church can we handle that i want to suggest to you that we need to be able to handle it if we're going to be like jesus we have to handle it and more than that the place that messed up broken needy people belong is in church i would love it I would love it if the project got a reputation for being a place where you could just really blow it and really lose it big time and you could be right at home there. And everyone could know about it. Everyone, it could be public. And we'll help you. Because we're just as much of a mess as you and we need Jesus as much as you need Jesus. We're probably more like the scribes than what we think. The scribes thought they could save themselves. That they could behave in a way that gave them brought them to a good position with god but their attempts only made their situation worse point three this counterculture that jesus starts is attractive check this out verse 15 
And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You get that? Many. You know, you know what the commentators suggest? They suggest what's happening here is Levi's being changed by Jesus and he's either having a farewell party from being a tax collector or he wants all his mates to come and meet Jesus. And there's lots of them in there. And you know what? They're still there and they're eating dinner with him. And he's not boorish and he's not irritating and he's not intense. I mean, there's times where Jesus is intense, but if you look through the scriptures, the times when he's most intense is with the, with the spiritual church guys. And I wonder if there's any of you here today that need to meet Jesus. You need to know that he loves you. You need to know that he wants a relationship with you and he wants to hang out with you. I remember my dad, who was in charge of a bunch of Presbyterian churches in New South Wales, one time he got a call from someone out west who said, oh, the Presbyterian minister just became a Christian. He said, oh, that's a really good thing, kind of. It's like, well, you kind of want to celebrate that you kind of, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's great, but it's kind of not at the same time. But you know what? You can be really close to Christianity sometimes, can't you? And miss it. You can be really, really close to Jesus, but never actually buy in. And I'll just ask you today, where are you at with Jesus today? And it's really interesting. It looks like possibly that Jesus is at Levi's house for this party. But you know the really interesting thing about it? Is it actually goes on to say in Mark 2 there that the people who are with Jesus are eating with him. That's a really interesting switch, isn't it? Like it's like, hang on, you're at Levi's house and it looks like he's meant to be host, but isn't that the way that Jesus works? He starts off and it's like someone else's host, but by the end of it, he becomes host. And he becomes the critical, central feature. And I think it's, a, you know, we've been, I've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks when it comes to needs. Yeah, you've got needs. You've got lots of needs. We've all got lots of needs. And it's kind of like you start with that and it's kind of like, you know, getting your needs met is really important. Then all of a sudden Jesus becomes the host and he becomes the centre of it. What about Mahatma Gandhi? Classic quote by Gandhi. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Ouch. Now, we probably need to be a little bit careful with that because Mahatma Gandhi probably had a a particular view of what Jesus was like because as far as I knew, he wasn't a Christian at the end of the day. Didn't follow Jesus directly. But I think we can hear something in that. I mean... I do get a little bit tired of people saying, I like Jesus, I just don't like the church. There's a lot of people in Toowoomba who don't go to church because they've been hurt by church and it's like, I like your Jesus, I just don't like the people who follow him. And, you know, we can talk more about that. There's lots of things we could say about that, but we could at least take the point away from that, that we need to be more like Jesus. Now, obviously, people's expectations kind of flow into that and what they think you should be doing and what they think Jesus is like. It's like the old, you know, a few years ago, speaking of Christian subculture, the whole WWJD thing, what would Jesus do? Well, it depends on who you think Jesus is and it depends on what you think about him and what you know about him. Because sometimes he looks downright rude. So if what, what would Jesus do? Well, he's just going to tear strips off someone. Well, you've got to be careful with it. 
But let's take away from that what we need to uh, take away from it. Tim Chester again. We can't do our work of pointing sinners to the Saviour unless we spend time with them. The first thing Levi does after following Jesus is to throw a party. Maybe like Levi, you introduced Jesus to your friends when you first became a Christian, but after a while you lost contact with those friends. Perhaps the church schedule left little time and church needs to repent. Uh, perhaps your new behaviour made it hard to hang out with old friends. Perhaps you were warned of the influence they might have on you. But those who avoid the contamination of sinners are like the Pharisees. Those who earn the label friend of sinners are like their saviour. So who do you eat with? Who do you give hospitality to? You see, doing lunch for Jesus was doing theology. And they liked him. They wanted to be around him. The first miracle that Jesus does is at a wedding. He gets invited to a wedding. And some of you might go, well, hang on. Didn't Jesus also say that sometimes people would hate you? Yeah, but they're going to hate you for your message, not for being an idiot. You get my point? They're going to hate you because of what you've got to say about God and Jesus. And sure, that's going to happen. There's a lot of people who get hated because they're probably hateful people in a sense, or they're really irritating people. And I don't mean to be too harsh, and I'm obviously present company excluded. It used to irritate me no end at the time. But that old line, if you want a friend, you need to be a friend. You heard that one? Do you know what? That's pretty true. You know, the people who are really good at being a friend, I've got lots of friends. Have you noticed that? And there's probably something about that saying that we could adopt. You need to be a really good friend to people and hang out with them and help them. And you don't have to close the deal in like three minutes. It's like I've got to run through the gospel story in three minutes with someone and then they've got to get down on their knee and uh, here's my money for the fuel (laughs) at the servo. Do you get what I'm saying? Just be, be like Jesus. We're almost done. See, this is why in the project we've got this thing called Freeloader Week. Freeloader Week is where we call off all of our community groups and you go out and you either be a freeloader or you have a freeloader. Go and do hospitality because this seems to be what Jesus is up to all the time. It seems that, I mean, if you read the book of Luke, it appears that Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal or leaving a meal. He's just eating with people all the time. And he looks like he's eating some really good food. So put some good food on and have people over. Get out a good bottle of wine. Spend more than five bucks on a bottle of wine and have some people over. Non-alcoholic. No, I'm kidding. You see, here's the thing. In this specific sense, you know what? If you're not Eating with unchurched people is a sense from today's scripture, from today's reading, that you're not being like Jesus. Oh, that's pretty simple, isn't it? So have a Christmas party. I mean, the last couple of years of the project, we've offered to throw heaps of cash in, missional cash, and we've got missional cash left over in our budget. And if you want to run a Christmas party this year and you want to put all the food on and you'd love to be really generous with that, we will help you do that. We'll give you the money. Just give us a budget and let us know what you want to do and how many people you want to come and we'll give you some cash so you can be the most generous person in the street. You up for that? And just invite them. 
And you don't even have to say grace, right? Some of you go, oh, do I say grace? And don't even say, well, you don't have to say it. You might want to, and that's okay too. But it's not like, let's get this, they've got to fit into our subculture. No, we're going to get out with them. And you know what? You may not even have one conversation with Jesus, but if you just, sorry about Jesus, but if you just sit down and you eat with them, you've been like Jesus. Have I been too hard on you today? Is this okay? People liked Jesus. Did they like you? <laughs> I mean, if you went up to people and you said, do you, do you actually like... Yeah, I mean, if you did a like, nice bootleg kind of armchair survey with people you'd caught up with down the street or something, you said, do you like Christians? What do you reckon about Christians? You know what? Probably a lot of them wouldn't. And one of the things that tends to get said about them is that they're judgmental. They emphasise behaviour. I couldn't be good enough. But here's the good news, folks. Even though Jesus at the end says, the righteous, that Jesus came for the sinners, not for the righteous. You know what? He wasn't saying that the Pharisees and the scribes had it together. Everyone's a mess. And you know what God's plan is? God's plan is that one day he will finally sit down with sinners and eat with them. You know, Jesus sitting down with the tax collectors and the sinners here is just a foretaste. Because in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 to 9, it's, uh, John writes this, he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Listen to this. The bride is the church. The bride gets given something clean to wear. Do you get that? So it's not behavioural before it's positional. It's positional, you get to be the bride and then he gives you something clean to wear. And listen to this. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day, God is going to sit down with sinners. And at that point in time, every sinner is going to be completely cleaned up. And I'm telling you, that is going to be the best meal that you've ever had with the best company you've ever had. And I don't care how lovely your wife or your husband is or your family, it's going to be the best time you've ever had in your life having a meal with Jesus. Amen? And everyone's invited. And you don't have to do anything to qualify, you just have to answer his call when he invites you. That's all Levi had to do. He just had to drop everything and follow him. And some of you today need to get more of a vision for that. Some of you maybe need to get a vision for it for the first time. That God loves you and more than that, he likes you and he wants to sit down with you and he wants to spend some time with you and he cannot wait for the moment and he's going to put on a good spread. How long is that table going to be in heaven? I don't know. It's going to be long and it's going to be outstanding. You're just going to go, I've never tasted anything like that before in my life. I've never felt the kind of peace that I've got right now before in my life. Don't 
miss out. It won't get booked out, but you might miss out because you don't accept it. 